Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Each person's journey is unique. Our goal is to connect survivors to resources along the way on their path to healing. Our host, Shaughnessy Terrell, is a member of Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney who has tried hundreds of cases against sexual predators. We are here to help survivors get access to justice. Join us on this journey. Here is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. I'm your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Joining me today is producer Jamie to help me kick off a two-part series on abuse within residential care facilities. Good morning, Jamie. How are you? Good, Shaughnessy. How are you? Pretty good. You know, it's summer, so that's really nice. But, uh, you know, excited to get this episode going. You know, we've been featuring this a series of series of episodes this year on specific high profile cases. And so we kind of thought that today would be a good idea to do one that hasn't received as much attention in the media because it doesn't have famous victims. We're talking today about a history of just absolutely appalling and honestly hard to believe abuse that occurred within the Miracle Meadows Residential Center in West Virginia. So Miracle Meadows touted itself as a Christian boarding school for boys and girls 6 to 17 who are, quote, experiencing difficulty relating in a positive way to family, school, church, or community, or are experiencing dishonesty, school failure, trouble with the law, spiritual disinterest, poor social skills, adoption issues, and other behavior that is harmful to them or others. So that was that came straight from their website. So basically, this was a school for troubled kids. And what they did is they preyed upon parents who were essentially at wit's end with their kids and they just didn't know what to do with them. So these are the kids who've been like really in trouble at school, at home, maybe even with the law. And the school convinced these parents that they were the answer. They would be the knight in shining armor who was going to swoop in and save the day. And when their kids were returned to them, they would be totally different. And that did prove to be true, but certainly not in the way that the parents were expecting or hoping. The school's director was Susan Gale Clark. She and her husband founded the school in 1987. And they were the ones who ran it until it was shut down in 2014 because of these allegations of sexual and physical abuse. And I'm not going to get into a ton of details on her because in our next episode, we're going to speak with Brian Kent and Guy D'Andrea of Laffy Boosie Kent, a law firm in Philadelphia that our firm does a lot of business with. And we partner on a lot of these cases with, and they're, they did this case. They're the ones who got this massive verdict for their clients. And we're going to talk to them in the next episode, but man, honestly, when I first started reading more about Susan Gail Clark, I kept thinking of Cruella DeVille <laughs> and I was like, but she's got nothing. Cruella's got nothing on Susan Gale Clark. It's basically what she did was she fostered this environment and she knew that these things were going on. I mean, obviously she, she was the owner of the school and she knew this stuff was going on and the stuff that was going on, the abuse really is, it does sound like it's been taken out of a horror movie and she at best turned a blind eye and at worst was a big part of it. And at the end of the day, what does it come back to for her? In my opinion, money, the tuition was $2,000 a month per student. So she didn't want that school getting shut down because this was a cash cow for her, which is disgusting. But these, so these parents send their kids, these troubled kids to this Christian youth facility in the hopes that they're going to be able to turn them around and get them on the right track. And they're going to be 
productive members of society. And instead, what the kids endured was torture beyond all belief. Brian and Guy go into some truly painstaking details in our episode with them. But this is some of the most horrible things I've ever heard in my almost 15 years of law practice. And it went on for decades and decades. There was a kind of an explosive Washington Post article that came out in February of 2017, written by Cleve Woodson Jr. And it detailed some of the things that they would do to them. And I'm just going to read a couple things out of there so that people kind of understand what we're talking about. Choking a handcuffed student until the boy lost consciousness. Students were handcuffed or duct taped naked inside a 10 by four foot room for weeks. They were let out for one hour a day, forbidden to interact with other students and had to go to the bathroom in a bucket. They would be fed bread and fruit for one meal, rice and beans for another. Before they could get out, they had to memorize Bible verses, sometimes a whole chapter. If they got any of it wrong, the quarantine was extended. And some were handcuffed for so long that their wrists bled. So that's just, it is crazy. And honestly, hard to believe. Like when you hear that, you think, even for me who does this work on a daily basis, you think surely that's not going on. And unfortunately it is. And what we continue to learn is what happened there is not the exception to the norm. This happens all over the place and it doesn't end there. There was also sexual abuse. There was sexual abuse by staff members. There was sexual abuse by resident on resident. Um, There were allegations of a 16-year-old pimping out his 10-year-old sister to other students for sex. They paid him in hygiene items and other things that he wanted, contraband or whatever. I mean, it really was a prison. And I think that the school administrators hid behind that a lot. They're like, you know, these kids are really troubled. You don't understand. We had to rule with an iron fist. Like these measures had to be taken. Okay, fine. You know, I, I get that. I get troubled kids. I get kids that nobody else has been able to get through and having to be very strict with them. Being strict is one thing. Being physically and sexual abusive is quite another. Well, I feel like in some instances, it's kind of the perfect storm, right? Because mm-hmm. you have children who are troubled you know, there's clearly like some behavioral things there, but then there's also children there that have mental disabilities. Mm -hmm. So their capacity is actually a little different. So you have some that are operating at a different level than others. And then adding to that too, some of them had physical disabilities. So when you think about personal attacks that are taking place on a physical or sexual basis, some of them didn't even have a way to defend themselves physically. Right. It's absolutely egregious. And Brian Kent said somewhere in some article that these kids were like the perfect victims. And that's what we see across the board. Kids in residential care are so easy to target. And it's for exactly what you were just saying. They're super vulnerable. Often they have already been abused. Um, that's how they get to the place where they are in the first place for having all these issues. Not always, but very often in, in these facilities, they're very isolated. It's just, they're really the only people they're coming into contact with on a daily basis are the staff there. It's, you know, no trusted adults in terms of their family or teachers outside of facility, nothing like that. And, you know, when there's a culture like that, the culture is pervasive. So when you have the culture amongst the staff where they're doing those things, Everybody to one degree or another is in on it because they at least know about it and nobody believes them because they're, you know, quote, troubled. And so this, this school even went so far as to tell parents, Hey, you know, if they say things like this, that that happens all the time that, you know, it's not true, but they're going to say everything they can to get out of here because we're, 
we're going to, you know, we're going to be very strict with them, very firm with them. And so the parents believed it. So the kids were reporting to their parents for years and years and years, but no one believed them because the school was smart enough to stop that before it ever even started. So the kids go into this place. They don't know that what's going to happen to them. The school knows what's going to happen to them because they are already setting up those safeguards to be in place. So when the kids do report to their parents, they were already like, oh, we were supposed to expect this. And it's not true. In a way, it kind of sounds to me like how a sexual abuse predator grooms those around them. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like in one way, that's what these administrators did. It's like beginning of the grooming process, telling the parents from the onset, like, this is how, you know, like the treatment is going to be, it's going to feel very strict to these children. So, you know, they could be reporting things to you and, you know, you need to take that with a grain of salt. A hundred percent. In these cases, the grooming was more toward the parents and the community than anyone else. As we've talked about lots of times, grooming isn't just of a child. It's, it's everyone around them too, to gain access to the child. In this case, the grooming really was only to the community and to the parents because they didn't have to groom the kids because they had complete control over them. The kids couldn't go anywhere or do anything without their consent. And so in the kids knew nobody was going to believe them because of their past histories. So it really was, it was perfect for, for predators. Perfect. And, you know, the isolation that these kids were subject to actually kind of reminds me of the Corolli ranch in USA gymnastics. Obviously there are huge market differences between these two sets of circumstances, but that isolation is just the same. The isolation at Miracle Meadows was because the kids had been in trouble and had done something, you know, quote, bad or whatever. And so they were there to um, learn lessons and be, you know, changed into productive individuals. Whereas at the Crowley Ranch, it was these elite gymnasts who were going there to perfect their sport. And so they were going there for a good reason, supposedly. But it's not any different, really. You've got complete isolation where these predators have complete access to these children and they don't feel or actually have any way to do anything about it. And so it's interesting to see those parallels, I think. In thinking about this interview, I did a little bit of research about residential treatment facilities, and it's kind of surprising when you look at the statistics. So one thing, the National Mental Health Services organization did a survey back in 2018, and they identified about 18,000 kids in Mm -hmm. residential treatment facilities. That's a lot of kids, you know, because just listening to the story, you might think, oh, well, Miracle Meadows. I mean, how many kids were there really? I mean, yes, it was horrible what happened there, but that's just one facility. Well, yes, that's true. That's just one facility, but there's many more facilities all across the United States. And when you're talking about 18,000 kids receiving some form of treatment at a facility like this, that really makes you stop and wonder about what the treatment looks like consistently across the board. And in further research, some of the things that I found was um, Mother Jones actually does a lot of reports on you know public access information and In March 2020, they found an increase of abuse and neglect of foster children who were sent to out-of-state mental health care facilities. Now, when you look at the number of kids who are actually transferred across state borders for care, you know, it kind of opens it up even more because they're even further isolated. To your point, the kids are even further isolated from their families. So they're definitely not going to be able to see their parents if they're in a different state. 
And then you don't know how frequently do they even have access to speaking to them on the telephone? Yeah, absolutely. And it happens so much more than people realize. We have pending litigation on against numerous entities right now. Timberline Knowles was a facility in Chicago that actually kind of catered to the rich and famous too. There were celebrities that went there. We have a client who was sexually assaulted by a staff member and that that defendant is charged with multiple cases of sexual assault against students there. Devereaux, which was on the East Coast, that's another facility. That one was for kids who had disabilities. And so like serious physical and mental disabilities. And so again, perfect victim for a predator, lots of litigation going on there. We've got some against some uh, facilities here within Indiana. There's one in particular that the litigation is moving along really quickly right now. So I'm not going to go too far into it, but we've been doing depositions. And this is a case where staff actually walked in on a 15 year old sexually assaulting an 11 year old. There was a 140 pound weight difference. And in doing these depositions, they still don't believe the 11 year old. (laughs) They saw it. And, you know, I, I I was just like, I don't understand. They're just like, well, he, you know, I'm not, I can't go too far into it, but I just, I'm obviously so appalled by it that I'm like, you, you guys saw it and they still are like, oh, but that kid's a troublemaker. And I'm like, so it, it happens all the time, all over the place. And, you know, the ones it's interesting to point out too that the ones that we're talking about are all private facilities. And while a judge could order somebody to go to Miracle Meadows, a lot of it was affluent parents who could afford $2,000 a month to send their kid there. When you think about all of these facilities across the United States where you don't have parents who have that kind of money to send in there and they're sent there by the state, it is hard to think about what's probably going on in some of those places because I think that we don't hear as much about those kinds of things. So the abuse is just all over and it's just so easy to get away with it at these kinds of places. They're not pleasant places. Fortunately, at Miracle Meadows, it took a long, long time, but Susan Clark did go to jail only for six months for neglect of a dependent. And there's some other pending prosecutions against staff members, one in particular who was a major contributor to the abuse. But Laffey, Boosie Kent, and there are a couple other firms who partnered on this and represented uh, 29 of these victims. They got a record settlement in West Virginia of $52 million, which is unheard of. It should be that way. You know, these kids are going to deal with things for the rest of their life. I mean, they are essentially putting these kids in what we call the hole in, you know, adult prison, which is inhumane for adults, where they're completely isolated 23 hours a day or whatever. Like there's a lot of controversy surrounding doing that to adults in prisons across the country. They're doing this to kids as young as six years old. It's disgusting, egregious, and hard to believe, but it was happening. It's so impressive that Laffy Boosie Kent was able to do that for them. And we're proud because we partner with them on litigation, like the Devereux litigation. We're um, partners in those kinds of things. Moving forward and talking a little bit about how this abuse can be prevented in terms of the schools and any, any facility that caters to children or services children in any way, they have to have proper background checks. And I think a lot of them aren't doing that. We have another case here in Indiana where a man with severe Down syndrome was raped by a staff member that worked for a service that would come and take the 
people with disabilities to activities. And that person had pending child molest charges against him when he was hired at this residential care facility. <laughs> they were pending. And if they had done the right thing and hired somebody like Safe Hiring Solutions to do the right background checks, they would have known that that was going on and ostensibly would not have hired him. So I think that's the first thing. Being aware of red flags of child abuse, sexual or physical, is the next thing. Knowing what to look for and especially in these cases, actual investigations, because so many of them don't even, they don't actually investigate them because they just don't believe it on its face because these kids, again, are troubled. Every single one needs to be taken seriously. Every single one, period. Because these kids are ripe for abuse. They just are based on circumstances. And we see so often over and over again that nobody's actually investigating it the way that it should be investigated. So do you think also part of this, the problem is that there's short staffed at some of these facilities? I feel like a a little, a few of the, maybe not Miracle Meadows, but maybe some of the other ones that I looked into, it seemed like it was kind of a combination of factors, right? So the staff wasn't appropriately trained on how to deal with children with behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. And then there also just wasn't enough staff because of the pay rate that this is, you know, so it's kind of the situation that's going on in the economy right now. Mm -hmm. If you're only paying $12 an hour for someone to fill this role, it's kind of hard to find someone to step in and do it. So they're just dealing with it. And they have just maybe one staff member for way too many kids. That's absolutely true. And a great point. Oftentimes they are completely overwhelmed and the staffing isn't nearly as many people as there should be. And they're not properly trained. We're finding that out more and more, asking these questions. They've never been trained in trauma-informed care. You've got staff members in psychiatric facilities who've never had any kind of training whatsoever on dealing with kids with psychiatric issues. And then you throw them in there and expect them to be able to figure it out and do the right thing and be able to effectively mind these kids without abusing them. And it doesn't happen. And even I think a lot of the time with individuals who are working in these facilities who are trying to do the right thing and they're starting out trying to do the right thing, they get so run down and overwhelmed by everything that's going on in there. It's a lot easier for things to slip through the cracks and for people to, you know, residents to abuse other residents or staff members to abuse residents because it's so much easier to get away with when, just like you said, they're completely understaffed and you can't be everywhere all the time and you get tired. I'm sure working in a field like this is probably exhausting on a daily basis So I truly feel for those who work in residential care facilities and other facilities similar to that. And I think it's important to mention, too, that while we're talking about this story specifically at Miracle Meadows, and that we do, unfortunately, have many other examples of other residential care facilities that have also had just too much, you know, like a record of abuse and neglect. There are some that are good. You know, I, I, yeah. I feel like we have to mention that as well. I mean, there, there are many great facilities out there that are doing some great things, but I think this these are the examples of what happens when you don't have the proper systems and checks and balances in place. This is what happens, unfortunately. 100% agree. You're absolutely right. So... On our next episode, we will talk with Brian and Guy, who are two of the attorneys who worked really hard on this and were able to help these survivors receive so much compensation, as is rightly so. And I think it's a really interesting episode. And so we encourage everyone to tune in and listen to that. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. Please continue to listen and share this podcast with others and submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you. And we will see you next time.